Right now, we're working on Campylobacter, um, FDN disease. Um, we have another student who's actually doing it on human diseases. She's looking at neonatal meningitis, E. coli. And we have another student working on Campylobacter hepaticus. And then we got somebody else working on serology in, in APAC, which is avian pathogenic E. coli. So we sort of cover the gamut of everything from isolation to detecting it, to characterizing it, to sequencing it and, and everything in between. And really we're interested in what makes these things tick, what makes them work, what makes them do their thing. So that's sort of in a nutshell what we've been doing. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AB Vista, offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Ivonic, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions, from essential vitamins like HYD to next-generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH to learn more about our newest solutions. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. I'm your host today, Dr. Karen Grogan, and I am happy to have on the show today one of my colleagues from the University of Georgia, um, Dr. Katherine Logue. And um, Kathy, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me. Delighted to join. Excellent. Um, so you can tell from uh, Kathy's accent, she's originally from Ireland, um, and she's been working here in the States. Um, and so tell us about your background and, you know, where all you have, uh, worked in your academic career and what your research focus is. Sure, sure. So, um, I'm Irish born and raised. Um, my parents still accept me, <laughs> even though I've moved stateside for so long. Um, I started, I did my undergrad at the Maynooth University of Maynooth, uh, in UI in Ireland. Um, then I did a postgrad in food science and technology. And after that, I did a PhD in meat microbiology at the Chagas, which is the Irish Research Center. Um, it's the Irish Agricultural Research Center. So my research, my PhD has been purely research. Um, so a lot of it focused on meat and meat production and slaughter lines and Yersinia and Salmonella and things like that in, in food produ production animals. And then I worked for the state for a while, and then I moved on and decided I wanted to go, you know, stay in academia and research. So I started out in North Dakota State as a faculty member there in food safety. 
did about 12 years in North Dakota, but we don't call it as 12 years. It's how many winters you survive. Uh, right. <laughs> it's a little cold there. It's just a tad colder. Um, yeah. And then we got kind of, then I got kind of recruited down to Iowa State and I spent about seven and a bit years there. Um, again, doing the same kind of research. This time the focus changed a little bit. North Dakota, I had access to a lot of poultry and turkey production. So I did a lot of stuff with turkeys. And then in Iowa, I sort of shifted a little bit more onto E. coli. And then kind of we had a lot of swine there. So I did some more research. Again, to me, it doesn't really matter the, the host. It's kind of the bugs and the drugs and the other things that I'm interested in. So if it's slaughtered, I've probably seen it. Um, and down here in Georgia, we're back to doing a lot more poultry work, which is probably where more of my interest lies. So um, right now we're working on Campylobacter, um, FDN disease. Um, we have another student who's actually doing on human diseases. She's looking at neonatal meningitis E. coli. And we have another student working on Campylobacter hepaticus. And then we got somebody else working on serology in, in APEC, which is avian pathogenic E. coli. So we sort of cover the gamut of everything from isolation to detecting it, to characterizing it, to sequencing it and, and everything in between. And really we're interested in what makes these things tick, what makes them work, what makes them do their thing. So that's sort of in a nutshell what we've been doing. And I think I've been at Georgia now, what, almost seven years. Yes, I think <clears throat> you and I started the same year. And I think you started like a couple months before me. So, oh, wow. yes, next year, I think. I think that was 2017. Yeah. Time flies when you have time flies, right? Either we're so busy, it goes by so quickly, or I think that's really it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> is uh, yeah. If you're, if you're so busy, you don't have time to realize how time, how quickly time is passing. So your, your, your kind of mainstay of your research has been E. coli. Um, one of, so one of them, one of them. Yeah. So in terms of uh, like kind of new under, new understanding or, or, or new aspects of that very old bug, um, you know, what are some things that you could highlight for our listeners in terms of, you know, what do they, what do they need to know? Right. What do they need to know? It's, it's been very interesting. I mean, you know, I sort of got into the E. coli as kind of a favor to a colleague of mine because they were interested in um, knowing lots of other things. And I was interested in drug resistance at the time. So I always tell people I'm interested in bugs and drugs. Um, and it was actually her that was interested in the a avian pathogenic E. coli. And, you know, we were able to isolate them for her every now and again when we were out doing production bird work. Um, and really, I sort of took over part of that, those projects over the years. Um, and, you know, when, when we started doing it, you know, APEC was really quite a distinct disease. And, you know, if you found it in lesions of birds with colibacillosis, you know, like, yep, you got an APEC problem going on. And back then, I think when they originally started doing it, you know, it was, it was quite, a, quite, a, quite a messy thing. Even now, I think it's still pretty, it's still pretty good at causing disease. We have a vaccine, but... Because APEC is so diverse, and I, and I try to explain this to people, is that there's so many E. coli that can cause disease that the vaccine's not going to cover everything. And what we've been looking at lately is, is, is what's happening now. Um, when I started here in Georgia, um, we were curious about, well, what's the APEC like in Georgia? What's the, what's the APEC landscape like, if you want to put it that way? So we've been able to partner with somebody and, and get isolates that are coming in from cases. And we started to look at the serology of them and what, what they're like. And what you start to figure out is that the serology is changing. You know, everybody talks about 0102 and 078, they're the serogroups. And they were like the big thing for years. 
um, that were, oh, these are the ones that are causing disease. Well, now that seems to have shifted. The landscape's shifting. And that's what we're watching is to see how much of the shift is going on. And we've gotten funding through USDA to kind of keep an eye on that. So I've got a grad student who's been kind of busily working through all these ISIS, trying to get the profiles. And once we get those profiles, we should be able to finish developing kind of a rapid assay that, that will you know test for the common ones first. And if we don't find the common ones, then we got to go figure out the rest. Um, the reason I say that is because there's over 180 serogroups of E.coli. Right. Trying to type these can be can be a challenge, and we can actually do that. We can actually type them all the way out because we've got the we've got the capability to do it right now. But we are seeing a landscape change. The other thing, um, years ago when we started working on APEC, you started to see that there were strains that were more pathogenic than others. And what we identified back then was that there's what we call this APEC plasmid. Um, and this plasmid was very common in the pathogenic strains and not in the fecal strains. And that was kind of the norm for a long time. But now we've seen that plasmid distribute itself in a lot of different ways, again, because of how bacteria exchange DNA and information. So we're seeing that plasmid turn up everywhere. And it's funny when you start looking at the literature nowadays, even in the fecal isolates that are from healthy birds, you can find these plasmids out there. So, I mean, it seems like E. coli has done a very efficient job of moving itself right. and its genetic information into its nearest neighbors and, and, and friends, as they say. So, you know, genetic- they're not picky about who they share with. No, they're not. And genetic exchange is an amazing thing when you see action. So, so I think we've, we've seen a bigger distribution of that. I think the thing that's really kind of a hot button area right now is, is sort of looking, I don't know if you've heard about the, what we call the foodie, F-U-T-I. So these are E. coli's that, that seem to be linked to human uh, urinary tract infections. And, you know, it's, it's kind of controversial right now. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about it, but they're trying to figure out where these strains are coming from and, and which way the exchange of information occurred. Was it from humans to the to production animals or was it vice versa? So that's, everybody's trying to figure that out. And that's that's sort of, I think- What the origins of those are. Yeah, exactly, trying to figure out their origins. So I think keep, keep an eye on that because I think that's kind of an emerging issue right now. So in terms of like, you're talking about kind of the stereotypes and population shifting um, in looking in, in poultry populations, any correlation in terms of like the reduction and change in what antibiotics and, and products that we use that our, our industry is shifting more towards, you know, birds not seeing any antibiotics. So NAE type of production. Um, it is it is interesting because I think, you know, when I look at data that we have, like from going back 10, 15 years or even 20 years ago, there was definitely a lot different kind of antimicrobial resistance profile in these strains. And I have seen a shift in it. And I had did a study not long after I came here where we compared some of our data with Georgia data. And then we had we managed to get data from two separate years. And you could see the drug resistance prevalence was going down. So the gene prevalence and resistance traits were dropping. And I think that's a reflection of that NAE. So I, there's no doubt about it. But that's not the only way that you can select for E. coli. I mean, there's, there's other elements that can also contribute to selection. But there's definitely there's definitely been a shift and a change. And I see, I think the same thing is happening with with what's going on in the bird production itself. I mean, where, the, where there may be vaccines going, vaccines will, will occupy a certain niche within a host. So then you're going to get shifting of the population to, to find other niches to, to occupy or different strains. And you see the same thing with the salmonellas over the years. It's the exact same kind of an effect. 
you know, some salmonellas will peak up and then they'll disappear and then you'll get other ones peaking up. And, and I think we're seeing the same kind of thing now with E. coli. So I think from that point of view, there's the landscape is continually moving. Or I call it the landscape, but you know what I mean, the microbiological landscape. Yes, the ecology of, you know, these are all gut inhabitants. Exactly. And if, if we're not using, you know, we're not using antimicrobials, we're going to use something else. So we're going to use a vaccine or we're going to use probiotic, prebiotic, like all these things that are altering. That shifts that population. It shifts where those things hang out and you get different strains that will come up that can hang out differently or, or, or occupy that niche that, that becomes there. So that's what I mean when I say the serogroups are changing. So it used to be 0102 and 078 were the popular ones. They were the ones you always talked about. Yeah. Like diseases of poultry, like way back. <laughs> Like those three are the only three listed. They're not the top three anymore. We're seeing we're seeing okay. the shift to like um, I think we're still seeing O two and O seventy eight, not so much O one. We're seeing things like O twenty five and a couple of others like that. So there's so there's and O eight. I think we've seen a lot more of that one as well. So there, there's a movement. There's something changing. So in terms of how E. coli behaves in the bird, um, I get this I get this question a lot. Um, you know, we know it's a normal gut inhabitant and you have E. coli there all the time. So so what triggers either the bug to act differently? What allows it to, to get out of the bug, out of the, the GI tract? Like what, you know, what are some things that, you know, people understand in terms of the pathogenesis of this particular organism? It's kind of fun, actually, because, I mean, there's a couple of different ways it does this. Um, so, of course, you're going to have E. coli is the natural flora. So birds can happily carry these things and healthy and happily and just disappear off down the slaughter line and not a big deal. And then you get situations where something happens. So maybe the ammonia level is too high in the barn. And maybe the birds start to, you know, maybe they overheat. Um, something starts to compromise that bird just a little bit. It doesn't even have to be a lot. Um, and then all of a sudden, maybe the dust level in the barn is too high. Maybe there's a lot of dust in there and the birds start to inhale this stuff. And you already have a bird that's kind of compromised. And if they inhale contaminated dust, then the next thing is you have an infection that's kind of appearing, you know, gets in through the lungs and the air sacs and then gets systemic from there. So that's one way they'll get it. Um, you know, dirty litter or litter in the barn and you get lesions or scratching, that's, you'll get cellulitis out of it. So that's pretty common too. Um, I mean, there are, there have been situations where in, even in layer birds, you, you get salpingitis or infections in the, in the oviducts. And then that's, that's another way that you'll get an infection in that layer, or it may even get transmitted to that chick, depending, you know, depending when those eggs are laid down. So there's a couple of different ways that E. coli will do it. But I think the main thing that you got to think about is that the bird is probably some degree of compromised when that starts to happen. Now, whether it's the shock or the trauma of another viral infection or whether it's just the, the shock and trauma of, you know, just ammonia in the air or something starts it off. And then that's usually what you got going. But that's that's what we call in that compromised bird. But there's also the possibility that E. coli itself can be pathogenic on its own. So it doesn't take a lot to for it to shift the landscape enough that it will actually take over that host. And then that's that's where you start seeing problems. So I think everyone the, there's always been this thing that E. coli is secondary. And we hear that a lot. Like, but but I, I want people to understand that you know, this can be actually primary on its own. If it's if it's a pretty powerful bug and if it's got a lot of great arsenal on board, and I say arsenal in terms of genetics, and if it's got a lot of those pathogenic traits, it can cause that disease on its own. So it does not need too much to get it going. Right. And 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 as you said, you know, we're we 
we raise birds in not a clean environment. Like we put them on to built up litter and yeah, they're dusty. Exactly. And then, and then you listen, you know, you listen to the producers and you listen to the birds. And I agree with them on this, that, you know, there's something about that built up litter um, that has a natural floor in itself. And Absolutely. I think it sets that bird up quicker in life. I mean, there's been studies mm-hmm. now where they've done totally all in and all that yeah. clean litter. And those birds that go in on the, litter's worse. On, on, on the established litter do well. They pick up quicker. They establish a flora quicker. So I don't think that's the – you can't really get rid of it from that point of view. Um, I think there's just kind of have to be some other approaches. And, you know, people do wind drawing. People do um, uh, PLT and some other litter treatment stuff as a way to kind of keep things down, try to keep the environment good and, you know, high-quality air and, you know, moving that air through. And all those things will help contribute. Um, I think you just kind of have to keep an eye for it. Excellent. Um, okay, so uh, you mentioned a couple of, uh, like – I guess they're not emerging, but uh, trend, they've been around for a couple of years, layer diseases that you're working on. Um, a couple of your graduate students, I know you're working on focal duodenal uh, necrosis, FDN, and um, what we term spotty liver disease and Campylobacter hepaticus. So let's go to FDN first. Um, and and I think that, that your, one of your graduate students has kind of come out with some interesting findings in terms of you know, this has been a bit of a mystery, what exactly causes this lesion. And I know you've been working on that. So yeah, um, I, I the, this is uh, my graduate student, Jerry, or Yu Yang Tsai. Um, he started, he actually started out as a master's in a colleague's lab who has since left. And I, I kind of adopted him and took him under wing. And then we managed to kind of expand his, his, his research. I think they had originally planned to do a certain amount of work. And I was like, okay, well, if we can expand this, maybe we can turn this into a PhD. And lo and behold, the young man's doing a PhD. Um, so really, I think originally they kind of figured out, well, there's something going on with this. And they, they were able to use some kind of high-tech tools to kind of go in and look at the lesions in the birds. So if you open up, if you, if you see FDN in a, in, a, in a layer flock, it's sort of very subtle. Um, but you will get drop-offs in egg production. They say the egg weight, go, the the number of eggs weight goes down. Pace weight goes down. So the birds are not happy. And you know, my thought on this was, well, this is kind of interesting. And then they showed me some um, some slides where they had had sectioned these lesions, and you could see that they were full of gram-negative organisms. And I was like, hmm, you know, okay. To me, in my world, I think, okay, maybe that's an E. coli that's in there. So they did some kind of really high-tech kind of cool stuff where they would take these lesions and they would cut them and they would section off and, and identify the, the DNA, the bacterial DNA that was left in those lesions. And it's, it's kind of high-tech work. I mean, you've got to get somebody who's really good at sequencing to do that for you. And we were fortunate that we were able to uh, get a guy down in Texas to run these kind of unusual samples. He, he loved the challenge, I think, more than anything. And, you know, Jerry started to figure out what's in there. And you find out that, you know, when you when you open up all these lesions and you look at them and you sequence enough of it, you find that there's this huge population of different things going on in there. And I think he's kind of got it narrowed down to saying, well, this is a dysbiosis. It's not really just one magic strain doing it, that it's a series of things and events. And, you know, based on what we've been looking at, we've identified some players that we think are important. And that's what he's been doing. And we just got another round of funding from the Iowa Egg Industry Center, the IEC in, in Iowa. 
Um, so they've actually funded us to go back and use these players to see if we can replicate the disease. I mean, that's been the goal all along is we, you know, you've got to kind of fulfill a version of Cox postulates out of this. You've got to be able to say, well, if these are the bugs yeah. that you're identifying. They make it happen. And make it happen, will they make it do? So this is the goal. We're going to start this probably around the middle or at late July where we'll get a bunch of layers in that we know come from uh, free flocks that don't have an FDN issue. And we'll hopefully stress them enough that maybe with this and the cocktails that we feed them that we can replicate this disease. And if we do, we'd probably be the first to do it. It's it's a long shot, but even if we don't, it tells us some players that are contributing to this, but it's going to take a little bit of work to figure that out. And hopefully we'll see, see the same kind of lesions. Um, you know, I mean, to me, it's a combination of, well, maybe stress, maybe, maybe feed, maybe, maybe the bugs. And, you know, you get a perfect storm the right way and, and you get losses and you, you'll get things going down. And if you look at the gut of these birds, they, they mean, they're obviously not happy. I mean, it's got to be, I mean, it looks like they call them cigarette like burns. So, I mean, yeah, the pathology is, you know, striking, like you can find it. And it, I mean, you got to figure out that poor lame bird is just not in great shape. I mean, they don't feel good. So if they don't feel good, everything goes down. Well, uh, so in terms of sort of this, you know, the the major players, there's an uh, E. coli. And then what other organisms? There's probably some Clostridium in there, too. There's been some different kinds of Clostridium that we think are tied to it. Um, I think he's got some Enrococcus species that he wants to run in there and a couple of other things. So we've We've built a, a profile of a couple of different strains um, that he thinks would be worth pursuing. And interestingly enough, one of the E. coli that we actually sequenced is a pretty powerful bug. It's been associated with some kind of losses in, in production birds across the U.S., but it's the first time we've actually seen it in these kind of lesions. So that's that's kind of novel and new. And we're, we're waiting to see how that pans out, and maybe that's another contributing factor. But, but of all of the samples and stuff that we have sequenced so far, you, there's never one single bug. It's always a series of bugs that we're seeing. So now we're going to build that series of bugs. We've, we've isolated the bugs too, and we'll build that cocktail, and then we'll we'll make different versions of the cocktail to feed to different groups of birds and to see what the effect is. So we don't really know which player is better than another. It could be that one player is a gateway to a second or a third bug. So it, it's going to take playing with cocktails of these bugs to figure it out. And that's that's the plan for the summer anyway. So we'll hear that at next year's conferences, hopefully. Hopefully, yes. I think hopefully. Jerry gave kind of people an idea what he was looking at as his as his key players right now. And he had a lot of good data to back up what he was saying in terms of the sequencing data and even in terms of what we could isolate from those lesions. And when you think about the lesions, they're, they're no bigger than the top of your finger. They're quite small. But you get enough of them in that duodenal area and, and you, you got to guess those birds just don't feel good. Well, excellent. Well, we'll look forward to, to new exciting things and hopefully uh, you're, you can figure out the challenge model. And Yeah, I think <laughs> the challenge is to, is, to see, is to see if we can actually solve it. Um, I, I'm pretty confident we'll get somewhere with it. I think we may not get exactly the lesions we want, but we'll get enough to know, okay, what, what, what is doing the damage or what's causing the part of the insult. And that's that's what we call it research, you know. That is. That's what we call it research. Okay, so the other piece you have a graduate student working on um, is uh, Campylobacter hepaticus and spotty liver um, disease. So um, I know there's some research groups um, kind of in Australia that have looked at this. And, and, you know, we had a couple of cases in the southeast and this kind of sparked um, this, you know, our, our sort of delving into this disease process and, 
you know, where this organism is hanging out. We do tend to see it in birds that have access to the outdoors. So um, what, what new and exciting info do we have on that organism? Well, it's grown a lot of what we say, arms, legs, and feet on its own. It's 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 a really kind of fascinating bug. I, I, I mean, I've been intrigued with it. I, I read about it a long time ago, and I wanted to keep an eye out for it because I've I've done a lot of work with Campylobacter over the years. Um, and then the first couple of cases that came in, we were like, oh, okay, maybe we're finally starting to see it. Um, I had a colleague in Iowa who'd seen it up there. Um, I have another colleague in Florida who'd seen it there. And both of their cases were actually in cage birds. So... What, what's been happening and what we found out actually when we went to AAAP is that it's actually pretty more common than we realized. It's it's out there. I do believe it's more common in the indoor outdoor birds. So these are these pasture raised or organic flocks that, that you know, go in and out of the free access to the house. And if you think about it, that's that, that's a huge environment to try and control. Um, you can't control that. No, we can't control it. You can't. Um, so, you know, whatever's outside is going to get brought back in. Um, my graduate student actually has some really great video of, um, you know, the birds when they get outside, they'll, they'll drink from puddles, they'll drink from water. So, you know, there's all these possibilities about what they could be bringing back in with them. But once they bring it in, I mean, it sort of distributes around in the house. So once it's there, it's going to get everywhere. In those birds, um, what you tend to see is that sometimes you'll see this subtle drop off in, in, in uh, egg production, especially in the laying birds. So he's seen that drop off. And then he's come back to some other clients, I think, that he was trying to help out. And he's seen that they had problems with actually birds keeling over and dying. And in those birds, if you look at them, the livers are in really bad shape. And we figure they're, they're dying of liver failure. I mean, but, but the funny thing is the crops are full. So they're going right up until the end. And then all of a sudden they just keel over and they're done. Um, it's as the disease goes, it's probably more than emerged i think we're actually seeing it in a lot of places i'm hearing you know from the midwest all the way to the south and southeast and and it seems to have spread everywhere i don't think um there was one point they were saying well it was more common in the brown birds and the white birds but a lot of the indoor outdoor birds tend to be those brown layers anyway so i'm guessing that's to do with variety selection for for the type of production I don't think it makes any difference. Um, we've done a bunch of work right now where we've tried to replicate the disease. We're actually one of the few groups that's actually been able to f- successfully replicate it. Um, it's interesting enough, I've talked to colleagues in the Midwest and they, they have not been able to get this to come back the same way we can. If we, get, if we give the birds the dose the right way, we could actually replicate it. So we, we can do it in a control situation. We've done it in SPF birds that we, we had. Um, and we've done it in other varieties of birds and we can, we can, we can get it to come back. So it doesn't matter to us whether it's a white bird or a brown bird, um, the different kinds of birds we've been able to replicate it. So we do have a fairly good handle on how to, how to mimic the disease. Now, now the next part is, okay, how is it doing the disease? Where is it going up in the bird? Um, can we find markers for it earlier in, in the, in the disease process? Can we, can we screen it in barns? Can we screen it in birds? So we've been doing a lot of work trying to figure that out this summer. Um, and then just finding ways, once we've replicated it, how do we control it? And we've tried a lot of, we did a study last summer um, or earlier on, um, and we've, we've tried to use kind of organic products, and they didn't seem to have a huge effect. They would have what we call a transitory effect. So you can get it to come down for a while, but, but unless it keeps going, I don't know how you're going to totally control it. So trying to come up with a product or a reagent or an agent that an organic producer is a little bit more challenging than a regular producer. <clears throat> they aren't allowed to use very much. Yeah, and their choices are very much more limited. So I think that's a big challenge is coming up with a, 
a strategy for that. And then, of course, the next thing is, well, you know, we've got to look at vaccine and developing a vaccine to it. Um, but once you have a rep, once you can model the disease and you can you can infect the birds and you know how to control it, the birds, then great. Now we have a way that we can actually develop the vaccine. So we've got the model part down. So now it's just kind of working on the vaccine part. And we've done um, a bunch of sequences of genomes, um, which we released because everybody's desperately looking for genomes and data. And we, we can find some targets for, for developing that vaccine now. So now we just got to keep working on that part. But it's, it's a fascinating bug because it seems to be kind of, you know, originally it was just sort of a small area that we were seeing it. But from what I'm hearing in anecdotal evidence, it's it's bigger than we realized. It seems to be a lot more places. And I noticed that Europeans are beginning to report on it now, too. So it's it's everywhere. It seems to be coming up. So then you get the question, well, where is it coming from? Yeah. And that's that's our next challenge. That's the next thing is to figure out where it's coming from. We've got some ideas. So we'll we'll kind of we'll kind of pursue those next and see what we can see. But yeah, that one's going to make a nice PhD, I think, by the time we get to the bottom of it. You know, if we can solve it, it'd be great. It, it, it's like a lot of these things as we're trying to, to, to solve all these, it creates more questions. And then, you know, hopefully, hopefully you can come up with, you know, a preventive. I think um, that so. would be wonderful. And this one will be interesting because, you know, Campylobacter is, is a normal inhabitant of the poultry gut anyway, but this seems to be a different one. And it doesn't really inhabit the gut. It seems to move. Um, it has a predilection for liver. It likes the liver. Um, and we do know genetically, um, the reason for that is because it doesn't have its own iron systems. It tends to use the host iron system. So that's why you find it in the liver and, and, and the bile of these birds, because it doesn't have a mechanism for getting its own source of iron. So it's got to it's got to go with the host. Right. So that's why you'll see. It's it. fascinating how bacteria do that. Like, they, they find the place that they need, you know, what they need to survive. and Yeah, and they manipulate the whole process. I mean, that's that's what you call a smart bug. And Campy's like that. It's it's pretty kind of cool that way. Um, I've, I've kind of enjoyed working with this one just because it's so much of a challenge. And, you know, even, even working with it, trying to culture it, you have to have the patience to do it. It's not a very fast-growing bug. Most factors come out in two or three days. This is a lot, lot slower. So... We sort of tend to put things in boxes and incubate them microaerophilically and leave them for a week. When we come back in a week, we can see something, but trying to do it sooner than that is not easy. And that's that's the challenge for most people is thinking like you could just you know solve it in a day or two. It's going to take a little bit more time than that. And that, and that's probably how you know it has taken a while to to discover a lot about this. Is you know if you apply standard microbiological, oh, I got nothing after forty eight hours, you know. That's that's yeah. not what you're that's not what you're doing. I mean that you've got to give it more time than that. But it's the same as, as the guy that figured out Helicobacter in, in in stomach stomach ulcers. Wasn't that the same thing? He happened to leave the plates a week or two longer and came back from vacation and oh there it is. Same kind of thing. I mean, we did the same way. We we sort of, you know, patiently waited, thinking like, well, we'll see if it's there and lo and behold, it, it took that long to figure it yeah, out. It's a super slow slow grower. Yeah, I mean, I know some people are saying they think they can do it faster, but we tend to just stick with what we know is definitely going to work. I don't, I don't try to meddle in between because I think, I think if you've got something that works, go go with it for now until we come up with something else. Excellent. Well, we will look forward to to those more studies coming out, yeah. more, more things and more knowledge about. Uh, you know, those are definitely challenging diseases and 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 spreading um, and and directly impact production and livability. So. Um, the more we can understand them um, for our our 
partners in the layer industry. Um, that would be great. Absolutely. Like even, even if you just understand, okay, you know, whatever you can do to try to minimize it, you know, maybe we can't get to the point where we get, you know, something to prevent it or like on the FDN, like it takes this, you know, almost perfect storm. Well, maybe if you knock out one or two of them, you know, then we can, you know, try to make an impact. But if nothing else, we've developed timelines. We know how long it takes to develop lesions. We know how much dose it takes to get the disease going in the first place. And, and, and we've got an idea of what interventions do or don't work. And then now it's like finding the next intervention that will work. And, you know, it's, it's stepwise process, but slow, but sure we get there. So we're doing, we're doing pretty good with it. I think, I think there'll be some nice PhDs coming out of these in the, in the next couple of years. So we'll, we'll do okay. We'll, we'll get, we'll have some good stuff to contribute to the industry out of it. No, no doubt. Perfect. Excellent. Well, um, so I, I think we have well covered anything else kind of on, on the horizon, like what's, you know, next in terms of, um, you know, I know that all of that is keeping your lab busy. Um, anything, you know, oh, you know, next we're going to go to this topic. Um, I kind of keep an open mind. Um, I like to kind of see what's going on. Um, sometimes it's, somebody will say to me, like, have you heard about this disease or that disease? And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's take a look at it. Um, I've never been wedded to just one bug. Um, can't do that. <laughs> I've worked on a lot of different bugs over the years of my career. So I kind of keep an eye on what's going on and, you know, see what's in the literature and then see if there's something emerging somewhere and say, oh, well, you know, we should run that here. Or if we get some samples in, we'll keep an eye on it and see. Um, and that's and that's how the thing with the hepatica started. It was the same kind of way that, you know, well, let's see if it turns up somewhere. And then it was just sort of some cases that came in our direction. Like, well, do you think this could be what you're looking for? I'm like, yeah, sure. We'll take a look. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything on the horizon right now. Um, I'm trying to think from the bacteriology point of view. I'm not sure that there's a lot of new stuff out there. There's some new enterococcus species that are kind of coming around that seem to be causing a lot of damage. Um, and these are not just the ones that, not just the quorum, but there's some other ones as well, I think, that have kind of started to emerge. And it'll be interesting to see where they go. So I, I try to keep an eye on what's out there. Um, but I can't, I can't think of anything, you know, that's, you know, just suddenly at the top of the list. I think you just sort of see what goes on and listen to what the, the guys are telling you when they bring in cases or listen to what, what they're hearing or seeing. And sometimes you get a hint from that. Job security, right? Um, New bacteria all the time. As long as there's something going, I think we do okay. And, you know, the more we chase around on things, the more we find. And, yeah, you know, it works out okay for us. Excellent. Um, so you you clearly, uh, you know, support an active graduate student program. Right. Um, gainfully employed, yes. Right. Keep them all gainfully employed. Keep them busy. Um what what kind of advice do you give, you know, your graduate students and, and people trying to get into the world of microbiology? Um, I, I think I, I, I like to see young minds hard at work. Um, and, and, you know, I love to have conversations with them because they've all got great ideas and they start to figure things out. Um, I, I just I just want want the, I like to see them flourish. I think encouraging them to flourish is really important. Um we work together one-on-one. -on -one. Um, we, we come up with things between us. They tell me what they see. I tell them what I think is going to happen or what I'm seeing going on. And we try to kind of build that rapport. Um, my students, it's their work. 
it's it's their careers and my goal is to kind of get them on the on the on the right side of the track and getting them moving forward um i just try to tell them to be themselves you know and you know okay there'll be days where things are bad and that's okay then go home and start again tomorrow um make sure they kind of understand that you know these things happen you know research is not a to b to c sometimes there's a lot of steps in between and just trying to figure it out I try to make sure they enjoy what they're doing, um, really encourage them to kind of write as they go. Um, and I think that gives them a lot of strength and, and kind of uh, capabilities because of that. And I just sort of try to bring out the best in them, I think. Um, they, they figure it out. They, they, they figure out what they want to do. They figure out what they're interested in pursuing. Um, and then we encourage them to kind of get things ready at, at certain points in time for, for different meetings. So, you know, we've gone to Triple AP this year. Uh, two, of the, two of the students went to ASM, the American Society for Microbiology. Um, we try to go to the IAFP in the, or not the IAFP, the IPPE in the spring. And that's, that's again, because they're really kind of student-centered meetings. So my students get that opportunity and I, and I want them to have that chance to speak to the industry and speak to folks. And, and that gives them a, a level of, of kind of excitement about what they're doing and, and getting that to convey that to other people. So I think that's sort of how I've, I've been kind of mentoring them. Um, try to write as they go, try to try to put this stuff together as they go. And by the time they get to the end, you know, a good defense is a great conversation. Right. By the time they get to the end, it should be easy to explain what Absolutely. they've done. Absolutely. And it shouldn't even be kind of a matter of defending it per se. It's a matter of having a great conversation about what you've been doing, what you found and, and what it means. And knowing that it gets you so far along, you know. It's time for our famous three. The Poultry Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. At JBI, we apply biosecurity innovation and expertise to keep your operation safe. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Evonik stands for a holistic and sustainable value proposition for livestock production. It combines products and services and leverages digital solutions. This is all backed with high-value consultancy and deep customer understanding. Evonik turns science-based efficient nutrition, sustainable healthy nutrition, and precision livestock farming into value for customers and consumers. Uh, so we'll go kind of uh, next thing in terms of uh, like either poultry books, not necessarily, or like a book that you recommend, uh, you know, career-wise, leadership-wise, um, anything that you say, you know what, you should read this. It's a great, uh, great guide guidelines for anything uh, doesn't have to be chicken related no i probably don't have a lot of chicken related um if you're talking fiction i love michael Connolly kind of murder mystery books and harry bosch the series is just my favorite so i'm kind of a crime nut that way um leadership books i've read a lot of them over the years um leaders eating last um Smart, what's it? Nice girls don't don't get the corner off. Nice girls don't get the corner off. Uh, ask why. Um, just say no. Just say yes. I mean, I've I've had I've read them all. 
Um, I think from a leadership point of view, I think finding a good leader mentor that you that you like and that you can you feel that this is kind of the style of leadership that you like. Everybody has a different style. I've had some great leaders. I've had some okay leaders. I've had some ones that's like, yeah, I would not emulate that. And I think you need to find that for for who that is for you. Um, everybody will find one a little bit differently. Um, I think someone who's interested in raising people up is is important to me. I think I, I think I've always kind of thought that that's really how I how I like to see a good leader. Um, it's it's about bringing the you know you raise the group you raise everybody. What's to say rising rising tides raise all boats? So uh, I think that's important. Um, but I think finding that kind of good person or that good mentor and and somebody that you 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 know has the qualities or the things that you would like to like to see in yourself. I think that's really important. And over the years, I mean, I've worked with a lot of different administrators at, at different institutions, and you learn a little piece from everybody. Um, and I've been fortunate that I've had some really great mentors that way, um, both men and women. So I think you, you pull the nice, pe- the quality pieces that you like from each of these experiences, and that sort of sort of becomes who you try to become, I think, and what you want in your, in your life. So leadership books to recommend to you? Oh, my gosh, there's so many of them. Um, right. I think that was a good answer is, you know, maybe it's not in a book, maybe it's in a person and a mentor. I think it's, I think it's in a combination of things. Um, I've, I've definitely learned some skills from books, you know, how to do certain things, or even the, my, one of my favorite probably ones from that point of view was actually crucial conversations, how to hold those conversations oh, with people. That's the hard ones. Yeah. Those are no, not how, easy. To, how to read people and how to, how to know how to answer those questions is and how to and how to deal with the situation when something comes at you because we all get bombarded with things and i think those ones you you learn a lot from that way but like i said i think most of my other stuff was just finding the good mentors working with them that's great advice perfect ending to our conversation i think that was perfect Um, with you yeah, thanks for your time this morning, Kathy, and um, enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks to everybody for listening to the Poultry Podcast. We'll see you on the next episode.